Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Samir Okasha, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Bristol. His new book, Agents and Goals in Evolution, is just out from Oxford University Press. Biologists standardly treat organisms as agents. They have goals and purposes and preferences, and their behaviors and adaptive traits contribute to the achievement of their goals. This explanatory practice brings evolutionary biology into conceptual contact with rational choice theory from economics, which provides models of how people make decisions and act on them. In his new book, Okasha explores the fascinating and complex links between evolutionary biology and rational choice theory, arguing that agential thinking in adaptationist explanations of non-human organisms is justified by a utility that goes beyond using the concept of function. He also reaches some surprising conclusions that natural selection does not necessarily or even probably lead to the most adapted or fittest traits. And he also considers how and when the idea of utility maximization in economics has its valid analog in the idea of adaptive fitness. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Samir. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you very much. Really excited to be talking about your book, Agents and Goals in Evolution. It's, it's really a fascinating exploration of the explanatory relationship between you know, evolutionary biology and then rational choice theory uh, on the other. So before we get into the actual nitty gritty of the book, maybe you can tell us a bit about your own background uh, you know, as a philosopher um, and how you came to, uh, to write the book. Yeah, so I'm a philosopher of science. I did my PhD at Oxford University, uh, finishing in 1998. My interests straddle traditional analytic philosophy and philosophy of science with a particular focus on evolutionary biology, though I've also always had an interest in economics and rational choice. Um, And for a long time, I've tried to sort of operate in, live a sort of dual life between being an analytic philosopher on the one hand and uh, discussing foundational questions in science, in particular in evolutionary biology, on the other. Uh, The book was a long time in the making, probably 12 12 years or so, um, and grew out of my previous book that was entitled Evolution and the Levels of Selection uh, that I published in 2006. Um, It was, well, well, we'll get into the, the detail in a moment. Okay, so so one of the the first you know concepts that you introduce is this idea of agential thinking, right? That an organism uh, in evolution in biology is treated as an agent uh, with goals, um, 
towards which its you know behaviors and its traits somehow you know conduce in some way. So, can you explain a bit about the overall structure of the book? What you're trying to do? Yeah. So the I mean the book is what you might call an exercise in philosophical anthropology, um, in the sense that what I'm doing is looking at a practice that I see in the science, in the, the science in question being evolutionary biology, that I find philosophically interesting and standing back and saying, why, why do people think and talk this way? Um, so what, what I claim is that there is a mode of thinking and of talking and of reasoning in evolutionary biology that I dub agential thinking, an expression I actually borrowed from Peter Godfrey Smith, um, that involves the deliberate transposition of concepts and descriptors that we usually apply to human agents, to rational human agents, such as purpose, belief, wants, desires, interests, that sort of thing, to organisms that we know don't really have those um, cognitive attributes at all. Now, this is what I call agential thinking. And um, there are two broad perspectives one, one might take on it. On the one hand, you might think that this is just sort of a form of anthropomorphism and is a vocabulary and a language that we could in principle excise from evolutionary biology if we wanted. Um, the second alternative is to argue that, no, there is some deep underlying reason why evolutionists have long thought and talked in this way. And our, it does presumably correspond to uh, the objective facts in, in some way. So it's more than anthropomorphism in that there's a systematic and principled reason why we employ this uh, cognitive and psychological idiom to describe evolved organisms and not in other areas of, of natural science. So those are the two poles, um, the anthropomorphism pole and the it's a natural way of describing the objective facts pole. And what I'm trying to do is sort of, if you like, steer a middle course between those or adjudicate between them and the sort of somewhat um, possibly uninteresting conclusion I get to is that the answer is involves a bit of each. Okay, um, so I want to I want to get back to that that particular idea of you know the I guess the that pole the anthropomorphic versus objective pole. Um, but what what is an agent? You sort of um, you described a number of different. Uh, terms in the, you know, intentional or psychological idiom. Um, what, what, what aspect, are there particular aspects of intentional, of the intentional vocabulary that are important here and then others are not, or are there limits to what counts as part of agential thinking or part of being an agent? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So, um, I mean, the, the key organizing distinction I begin with in, in chapter one is it is between what I call agential thinking of type one and of type two. So when we're doing agential thinking of type one, we're treating an actual evolved entity, paradigmatically an individual organism, as an agent. And we're trying to understand its evolved traits, including but not only its behavioral traits, as uh, strategies or instruments that the animal, that the organism is using in order to achieve that goal. So for example, its goal might be um, to maximize its lifetime reproductive success and a sub-goal might be therefore to try and acquire a mate 
and its mating display might be an attribute that we use, uh, that we understand as a way of achieving the goal, the sub, the intermediate goal of attracting a mate, which in turn conduces to the overall goal of uh, maximizing its um, it, its lifetime reproductive success. So that's type agential thinking type one, where the agent is an evolved organism. Agential thinking type two is a rather different business and involves um, metaphorically analogizing the process of natural selection itself to a process of deliberate agential choice. Um, so if you like the agent in agential thinking type two is mother nature herself. Uh, so we think of the process of natural selection as akin to a process of rational choice in which nature chooses between alternative genotypes or phenotypes according to some criterion. And that's a very different motivation for importing the language of choice, um, preference and goal into evolutionary biology than is agential thinking of type one. And in short, one of the key arguments I make is that agential thinking of type two is a flawed heuristic applicable only to the simplest sorts of natural selection. But agential thinking of type one is a, um, a, a, val a valuable heuristic and is not universally applicable and certainly rests on adaptationist presuppositions. Uh, but nonetheless plays a genuine intellectual role in the science, uh, which I try and articulate in the first two chapters. Okay. Um, so let me, you know, you've talked about it as being a valuable heuristic, um, even though these evolved organisms don't really have, have the attributes. But of course, we, we are evolved organisms too. So how is that, you know, how are you adjudicating that line between when this conceptual scheme, you know, intentional idiom, decision idiom, agential idioms um, are, are like, uh, you know, mere heuristics and, and, and not mere heuristics, given that we, along with everything else in biology anyway, are, are evolved. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I suppose I'm, uh, although I don't say this explicitly, I'm, adopting what I think is a fairly conventional line on the, the reality of intentional attributions in that I'm presupposing a form of intentional realism as applied to human beings. Um, so I'm taking it that the vocabulary of belief, desire, try, purpose, uh, prefers, literally does describe the psychology of, of human beings and that it's um, and possibly other, possibly other higher vertebrates too, but certainly not bacteria or genes or um, many invertebrates. I don't see that there's any good way of drawing a, a hard and fast line there, but I, I, I do think it's fairly uncontroversial to say that, for example, um, if we're considering a bacterium swimming through an oxygen gradient, then we know very well that the, the proximate cause of its behavior is chemical, not psychological, but nonetheless, we might well say that what the bacterium is doing is trying to reach an area of higher oxygen concentration, for example. Um, so I take it that that's an uncontroversially metaphorical 
use of the intentional idiom um, by contrast with um, an intentional description as applied to to human to a human agent. Now I realize that's not the only possible line to take, but I, th- I think that's the default uh, sort of common sense position and the one that I'm, I'm presupposing here. Right, right. Um, although you you mentioned Peter Godfrey Smith, I mean, I mean he's done a lot recently with with cephalopods, right? You know, in, inver, invertebrate intelligence, and um, I just I wonder to what extent, right? He would he would agree with with that. I mean, you, you mentioned that it's a it's not clear where the line would be drawn. No, it isn't, and I mean there are and there are quite serious um, re- researchers who entertain the hypothesis that there is such a thing as plant intelligence, so extending even even beyond the the animal kingdom. Um, I tend to, I was trying to stay neutral with respect to that issue, really. Um, I mean, I take it that many of the sorts of agential thinking that I'm I'm interested in, as for example, when we say that a worker bee kills the eggs laid by a fellow worker because it prefers that the queen's eggs be reared instead. I take it that that is um, best thought of and as a metaphorical usage of intentional vocabulary, but I don't have any knockdown argument against someone who says, you know, with Dennett, no, all, all intentional vocabulary is, um, is similarly metaphorical. Right, right, right. I mean, he, he kind of applies the intentional stance across the board. Yeah, and my and my project is in in many ways uh, owes a lot to Dennett, um, but I think that that particular commitment of his is um, dispensable and is is orthogonal really to the the project that I'm um, engaged in here, which is to understand you know why it is that evolutionary biology, without much self conscious reflection, um, has has so has been so ready to use this this language of agency and of, of goal directedness and of preference and of strategy as applied to organisms with very limited in many cases with very limited uh, cognitive capabilities okay um, so um, again you one of the one of the issues that you deal with um, is an objection I think also from from Godfrey Smith, that this language actually is dispensable. Um, could, you, could you explain why you think that is incorrect, that it, it is indispensable in a way? Well, I haven't used the language of dispensability and indispensability so much as using the, the contrast between um, the question, the issue of whether it plays a genuine intellectual role in science and whether it doesn't. And now maybe that's that amounts to to much the same thing. Um, I mean, I certainly think that what I call agential thinking of type uh, two is, is is dispensable. That's the, that's the mother nature type of way of thinking in which we um, we treat the process of natural selection itself as akin to a process of deliberate choice between alternatives. And I've argued that that's um, not a generally valid way of thinking about natural selection in that it's only applicable to the simplest sorts of natural selection. 
um, and is 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 a is a flawed heuristic indeed. Uh, but agential thinking of type one, where we think of the, of the agent as the individual organism itself, or possibly a group, or maybe a gene in certain circumstances, but paradigmatically the individual organism. Yeah, no, I regard as um, as not something we can simply dispense with in the sense that we would lose great explanatory power if we tried to. Um, now, one way I've tried to make that argument more precise is to pose the following question. Suppose we grant that the language of function is legitimate in, in evolutionary biology in the sense of selected effect, as philosophers often say. That's when we equate the function of something with its adaptive significance. Uh, so we, when we say that the function of the cactus's spines are to deter, <clears throat> are to deter herbivores, um, then we simply mean that that's the reason why they evolved. It's, it's because of that, that that they evolved. Now, let's ask the following question. Grant the language of function in evolutionary biology. Does the language of agency really add anything to that? If we, if we describe the cactus as trying to deter herbivores and growing spines for that reason, is that really anything other than um, an unnecessary... Um, long-winded way of saying the function of the cactus's spines are to deter herbivores. And presuming we're happy with the latter attribution and understand you know, how to translate it into, in, into purely causal terms, then one might well say, look, is the language of agency actually adding anything to that? And I pose that question in, in a skeptical uh, tone of voice, if you like, um, and then and then end up arguing that the answer is actually yes, that there is a genuine reason um, why we use the language of agency and we think of the cactus as an agent trying to achieve something. And similarly for, for other organisms and their evolved traits, and that it does add something over and above uh, the language of function. And the key to what it adds lies in the concept of unity of purpose that I develop in chapter one. Okay, that was actually my next my next question was if you could uh, explain this concept of unity of purpose because it does play an important role kind of throughout the book. So maybe you could say something about that concept itself and then how it how it figures in your in your discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, I mean, the basic idea is is that um, talk of agency does achieve something that talk of function doesn't, and the reason for this is that functional talk applies to traits, but agential talk applies to organisms. So that's to say we talk about the function of a particular trait, but it's the whole organism, not its traits, that has a goal or objective or prefers one thing to another or has interests, etc. And this in turn highlights, I think, an implicit theoretical commitment of agential thinking of type one. And, and the commitment is this, that the entity that we treat as the agent, typically the individual organism, must possess a unity of purpose in the sense that its different traits must contribute to a single overall goal, namely enhancing the organism's fitness. And I think of this as a kind of evolutionary analog of the psychological unity of purpose that is presupposed, I argue, when we apply 
intentional vocabulary to a human agent. So that latter point, that the application of intentional vocabulary to a, hum a human agent presupposes unity of purpose, is a familiar theme in the philosophy of mind and action. So there the idea is that if we can't make sense of an agent um, in the sense of finding that their intentions are consistent and that their motives are consistent and that their actions cohere with their motives, then we can't sensibly think of them as trying to do anything or treat them as an intentional agent at all. A familiar theme in the work of Donald Davidson and Dennett exactly. and of right. Christine Korsgaard and Michael Bratman and others in, in the philosophy of, of mind and action. Um, and what I argue is that there's a sort of biological analog of that point in that an analogous unity of purpose is necessary in order for an evolved organism to be treated as agent-like and is in fact presupposed when we apply agential idioms such as interests and the language of interests and goals and intentional idioms such as the language of wants and tries to an organism in an evolutionary context. So that's the key argument. And that in turn is meant to illustrate that agential thinking and the agential idiom, as I sometimes write, um, does do more than the functional idiom in evolutionary biology in that it rests on this crucial um, empirical presupposition. And when that presupposition is violated, agential thinking and the use of the agential idiom ceases to be applicable. Can I, illustri can I illustrate that last point? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. um, I illustrate this with a, with a number of examples. I'll, I'll just give, the, give one example from the book, and this involves the fruit fry drosophila and a phenomenon known as um, sperm killing, which results from a gene on the X chromosome in a number of species of Drosophila pseudo-obscura. Now, what happens in this case is that a particular X chromosome variant produces no Y-bearing sperm at all because genes on the X chromosome basically disrupt spermatogenesis, so, so they're sperm-killing genes. And as a result, a fly bearing that X chromosome variant produces far fewer viable sperm than would a normal male. Okay, so then we've got this particular trait failing to produce Y-bearing sperm. Now, that trait doesn't benefit the fly itself. On the contrary, it benefits the X chromosome itself or the genes on it. However, other traits of the fruit fly, for example, is mating behavior, are designed to try and maximize its reproductive success. So here we find that the fly exhibiting two traits that pull in a different direction, if you like. One trait, its mating behavior designed to maximize its reproductive success. Another trait, failing to produce Y-bearing sperm, which results in far fewer viable sperm being produced than, than, than in a normal male, does not similarly enhance its, its reproductive success. So if we try and treat the fly as a unified agent and we try and understand the trait of failing to produce 
Y-bearing sperm as a means by which the fruit fly tries to achieve its goal, we won't understand what we see. And I think of that as a sort of partial breakdown of unity of purpose and something that impedes, um, that, that undermines or prevents us applying agential thinking to the fruit fly. And that's meant to be an analog of the, the psychological disunity of purpose that when too widespread renders inapplicable the use of intentional descriptors in human beings. Right. Okay. So um, I guess there's two different directions that I'd like to go into from that. Um, first of all is, um, you know, the unity of purpose, the whole idea of agential thinking type one applies to the, the organism, the individual organism in the first instance. But as you also discuss in the book, you know, it has been applied to, uh, to genes, you know, notably the whole idea of a selfish gene, um, and also, and also to groups, right? To, to, you know, not just you social insects, but also collectives, you know, including like human collectives or any other sort of, of group of organisms rather than individual organisms themselves. So, so I guess the first question is, you know, how does this apply at both um, or, or does it apply in the same way or with the same heuristic value um, to, you know, both parts of organisms and then groups of organisms? Um, um, and then the, the second line of questioning was this analogy you have between psychological unity of purpose, right? Rash, you know, the Davidsonian thing about, you know, beliefs and desires cohering with actions. And this is a rational agent. And that kind of implicitly brings in the concept of what rationality is, you know, and so it sort of makes agency essentially or intrinsically rational. And we haven't talked about, I mean, you do get to rationality later in the book. So, um, but I am kind of interested in exploring not just, you know, rationality, but its relationship to the concept of of agency, because we haven't yet said that agential thinking necessarily involves, you know, some sort of rationality. So, so first, you know, the genes and okay. So two yeah. two questions then. So firstly, about whether we can apply agential thinking to genes and groups as well as to individual organisms, and secondly, the link between agency and rational agency. Good. Okay, I'll take the, the first question first. So what I'm assuming in the book, and this is, I think, in line with the dominant way of thinking in evolutionary biology, is that for the most part, it's individual organisms that are the adapted units we find. And insofar as agential thinking is a way of implementing the adaptationist program in evolutionary biology, we should expect that for the most part, the entities that are treated as the agents with the purposes and the goals will be individual organisms. And that's indeed what we do find. So that's why I, I say a number of, in a number of places in the book that the paradigm instance of agential thinking of type one involves treating an evolved organism as agent-like and understanding its traits, including its behaviors, as means by which 
it furthers its goals. However, there are certain circumstances, I argue, in which it's legitimate and in which we do in fact find biologists treating entities other than individual organisms as the agents. Um, and I mentioned that the selfish gene tradition in, initiated by, by Richard Dawkins and now carried on often under the label of ultra-selfish genes. So these are genes that secure an advantage, a transmission advantage for themselves, despite harming the host organism which they're based. And in fact, I gave an example a moment ago of a, a gene on the, on the X chromosome in Drosophila that um, prevents any, any Y-bearing sperm being produced and therefore enhances its own transmission prospect. And I argue that in one specific case, it can be legitimate and heuristically useful to apply agential thinking to the gene itself. And this is precisely in cases of intragenomic conflict or genetic conflict between genes within an organism. Um, so in short, in that example of the fruit fly, although the unity, the disunity of purpose we get at the level of the organism undermines partially the applicability of the, in, the agential thinking to the individual organism, we can, if we want, still apply agential thinking by going down a, a level in the hierarchy and treating the individual gene as the agent. So that's the, the sole circumstance, I argue, in which it makes sense to think of genes as agents. Now, of course, as is well known, Dawkins and many of his followers applied their paradigm, at least initially, far more broadly and wanted to argue that all genes could be thought of as trying to increase their representation in the gene pool at the expense of their alleles. But the key difference is that in a case of a so-called ultra-selfish gene or a selfish genetic element, the gene is in conflict with other genes in the same organism rather than in conflict with its alleles in the, in, in the population. And it's only in that case that I argue that we can sensibly apply the, the agential thinking idea to the individual gene. When it comes to groups, matters are slightly different. So there I argue that the unity of purpose constraint on attributions of agency basically implies that for the most part, groups of organisms won't be good candidates for being agent-like. And that's a, a corollary of the widely accepted observation that instances of group-level adaptation in nature are fewer than instances of individual-level adaptation. And the reason for that is that in a typical group, um, with some exceptions, perhaps such as honeybees, certain honeybee colonies, for example, in which internal conflict is, is, is suppressed. But in a typical animal group, then there may be a commonality of interest to some extent, but we also find enormous conflict. So the group doesn't really act um, as a single unity, if you like. Uh, rather, m much of what we see, we need to we need to understand as 
individual organisms pursuing their goals rather than the group pursuing its goal. And it's only in cases of extreme group integration, roughly the cases that motivate the descriptor superorganism in evolutionary biology, the controversial description that I think most people would agree is only, only rarely applicable to groups of multicelled animals. It's only in those cases that we can really think of a group as agent-like. And the reason for that is, again, this unity of purpose constraint. Okay. So that's the um, first question. Right. Would you like to talk more about that sort of thing? Uh, well, I would, but I don't think we should because okay. we'll run out of stuff. I do want to get to the rationality issues and other things. Right. So. Okay, so then you had a question about whether, as I use the term agency, it presupposes rational agency. And it, it, it's a good question. So one thing I do in chapter one is distinguish between three notions of agency that we find in, in philosophy and in science, or three, three rationales for applying the language of agency to individual, to, to individual organisms. But I mean, as regards the concept of agency itself, I start by describing what I call the most minimal notion of an agent. And this is simply that of an entity that does something or, or behaves, if you like. So here I'm drawing on Fred Dretzky, who argues that there's an intuitive distinction between an agent, an entity that does something and something happening to that entity. So if a rat moves its paw, that's something the rat does. But if a biologist moves the rat's paw, dead rat's paw. That's something that happens to the rat, not a behavior of it. So just that basic point defines a minimal notion of agency, I think. However, in philosophy, we've traditionally been interested in, in, a, in a much richer notion of agency, according to which agents are entities that act rather than merely behave, where act means does something for a reason, or, or act refers to intentional action, if you like. So on this notion, then agency is intimately linked with practical reasoning, that's to say with working out how best to achieve one's ends, and with instrumental rationality, and so requires a certain psychological architecture. So that's a, a richer notion of agency, according, and in that sense, then not so many biological entities obviously would be literal agents. In, in, that, in the sense of intentional agents. So we have the minimal notion of agency, an entity that does something, the, the philosophical notion of intentional agency, according to which humans are the paradigm intentional agents. But then intermediate between those, we have uh, the notion that we find in AI of an intelligent agent, which basically means anything that perceives or senses its environment and then performs actions but also the environment. So basically anything that exhibits sufficient flexibility, um, goal-directedness and autonomy in its behavior, which I think of as a notion of agency with much weaker psychological requirements. And another intermediate notion of agency in between the minimal notion and the full notion of intentional agent is the notion we find in economics, in, in the rational actor model, in which we define an agent or rational agent at least, 
as one whose behaviors satisfy certain consistency conditions. So then they behave as if they're trying to maximize a utility function. So those are the four notions of agency that I find at work in philosophy and science. The most minimal notion, the philosopher's notion of agency is intentional action. The AI notion of agency is exhibiting flexible or goal-directed behavior. And the economist's notion of agency is rational choice. So that's my taxonomy of notions of agency. Um, and when it comes to agential thinking in biology, I think we find aspects of each of them at work, um, sometimes in a literal sense and sometimes in a more metaphorical sense. So with regard to your question of whether agency is necessarily rational agency, I th think not, although I do think in the, in the paradigm cases that we're familiar with in human from humans at least um, I'm persuaded by the line of argument that we get from Davidson and Dennett and many others that we can't sensibly apply intentional descriptors to the organism without diagnosing a fair degree of rationality um, a fair degree of coherence in their in, in their intentions and um, consistency between their chosen actions and their their beliefs and their desires. Um, okay, so I, I you know some of that seems to turn on what one considers to count as having a reason, I suppose. Um, I mean, so just to go back to the example from Dretsky that you mentioned, um, you know, the rat, you know, moving its paw. I mean. Uh, I'm not sure if you would say, yeah, it, it had a reason to move the paw. Um, well, I think uh, Dretsky is after something much more basic, um, which it is, and that's just whether the cause of the motion is internal to the entity or not. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, which is um, the, a very, very sort of hard to make precise distinction for one, but also a very sort of basic distinction. And I think one that would be applicable to inanimate objects as well right and so uh, what i was what i was getting at was the minimal notion that you mentioned um, yeah is is perfectly acceptable for you know uh, uh i don't know a uh, um a robot mm -hmm. you know of some sort of um, right you know that 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 uh a vacuum cleaner for example mm -hmm. um uh, whereas, you know, a rat or even a bee or something like that, that they seem to have a bit, you know, a bee d does seem to act for reasons. Um, and, and again, you know, so this is the thicker notion, but there seems to be something different. Uh, you, you seem to want to say that there's something still different between, say, the, the Roomba that... Yeah you know, that behaves or that mm -hmm. has some sort of minimal agency mm -hmm. and the human who has this somehow very thick notion of reasons. And then, and then there's the, the bees and the rats and all that. And, and they're kind of, well, mm -hmm. it's heuristic, but it's not heuristic. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as I said I'm, earlier, I'm trying to stay neutral with respect to the question of whether intentional and psychological attributions to 
most non-human organisms are better thought of as metaphorical or literal, although I incline towards the metaphorical, particularly when you're dealing with things without nervous systems or with only rudimentary nervous systems. Um, I mean, with regard to the idea that a bee acts for reasons, I take it that I suspect that many sort of traditional analytic philosophers would dispute that and would say something like, no, there is a reason why the bee acts that way in the sense of an evolutionary rationale, but it's not that the bee has a mental representation of that reason. And that, that I think, is also what I would want to say. So one thing I did in the, in the final third of the book when I talk about evolution and rationality is to argue that it's a mistake to um, equivocate between or to equate there being an evolutionary reason why a particular behavior is found in a particular organism and that behavior necessarily being rational, if you like, in the sense of uh, conforming to principles of rational choice. Well, let's, can we maybe turn directly to the, you know, relationship yeah. between rational. We, we've sort of, you know, edged our way in there. Okay, this is and the final the, third of the book. You, yeah, exactly. Now. So you, uh, so let me just ask specifically, you know, you, you look at the, you know, the linkages between rationality and adaptive behavior and how they intersect in basically um, two different ways. One, one is that, you know, rationality is on the one hand an outcome of selection, right? I mean, we are evolved creatures and we are, you know, admittedly rational, at least sometimes. Um, but the relation of uh, uh, its relation to adaptation is, is less clear, which is, is kind of interesting. So I want you to go into that. Um, but then there's also this other aspect that we have been talking about of using rationality concepts to explain adaptation. So could you, you know, explain each of those linkages? Yeah, or, absolutely. I mean, this is, this gets quite complex. And what I was really trying to do is sort of see a path through the, the forest here myself in that there's, I think, long been an idea abroad in the, the literatures on evolution of behavior that there's some sort of correspondence or connection between adaptive behavior and rational behavior. Um, so it, by adaptive behavior, we mean behavior that has evolved because it benefits an organism's fitness in the, in the simple paradigm case. Um, and by rational behavior, we mean either what philosophers traditionally mean by rational behavior, behavior that's suitably based on reasons, on typically on beliefs and desires, or rational behavior in the somewhat weaker sense of economics and rational choice, according to which we mean uh, behavior that satisfies certain consistency constraints, certain axiomatic constraints. Um, and so what I was trying to do is to say something about why these two notions have often, may, may, can, may correspond to each other to the extent that they do and what the connection is. And as you say, my starting point is just the simple observation that there are two dimensions to this connection. Because on the, on the one hand, 
rational behavior or, or at least the cognitive prerequisites for it are presumably an outcome of natural selection itself. Um, that's to say natural selection eventually led to creatures such as ourselves and perhaps other, other animals too, who are capable of engaging in rational behavior in either of those two senses, whether or not we do it all the time or as often as we should. So that's the first dimension. And the second dimension relates back to agential thinking. And this is the fact that we routinely draw on rationality concepts to theorize about and explain adaptive behavior. And so I was interested in why, in these two, two different ways of thinking about the connection between evolution and rationality and how they might link up with each other. Okay, so so regarding the the first one, right? Um, so one one of the things that you I want to explore that a little bit more. Um, so what one of the uh, to me really interesting uh, you know arguments that you go through in the book is um, uh, the that the relationship between selection and adaptation is is weaker than many of us you know i'm perfectly fine to include myself is much weaker than is typically assumed yeah that's right could you could you um walk us through that a little bit because that was that, that's a very interesting sort of um you know argument that you're making yeah i mean so at some level that is a could be you know, someone might say, "Look, that isn't that a commonplace that natural selection doesn't necessarily lead to adaptation." However, it's typically, at least in philosophy, I think perhaps less in evolutionary theory itself, it's typically thought that the only reason for that is the existence of constraints. Um, so, obviously, if the, the the variation from which selection can choose is heavily constrained. Um, or if non-selective forces intrude or overwhelm natural selection, then we, we don't necessarily expect to see adaptive outcomes. But that way of setting it up almost presupposes that in the absence of constraint, natural selection does lead to adaptation. Um, but I think that despite the prevalence of that viewpoint, both in biology and, and without, I think that it isn't really true in that when we delve into the details of evolutionary theory and we go beyond the sort of simplest models, and particularly when we look at the modern theory of frequency-dependent selection, then we find counterexamples to the thesis that natural selection leads to adaptation. So, I mean, clearly, if we think of the, the simplest most paradigmatic form of natural selection, according to which there exists a number of phenotypic alternatives in a population, which can be ordered by their fitness. And then we think of natural selection as a process in which the best one is chosen and fixed in the population. Then clearly, natural selection will lead to the best or most adaptive variant being fixed in the population. But of course, that, that, that simple model is... Um, inapplicable for a number, not universally applicable for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that the, the fittest phenotype obviously may not breed true, so we ignore uh, the, the process of inheritance 
and, and of sexual reproduction. And another is that that argument, that simple argument presupposes that the selective value or the fitness value of each type is just a fixed property of it. And so therefore ignores um, the phenomenon of, of frequency dependence. And when we take both of those two into account, then we see that we find that what I claim modern evolutionary theory suggests is that there's no theoretical principle to the effect that natural selection will lead to adaptation. Now, that's just a sort of reading of what I see the modern theory of evolution telling us. And the reason I'm interested in it is that I think it bears directly on this question of the relation between the two sorts of agential thinking. That's type one, in which the agent is the evolved organism, and type two, in which the agent is mother nature. Um, because type, agential thinking of type two is a way of thinking about the process of natural selection. Agential thinking of type one is a way of thinking about the product of natural selection, that's to say the evolved organisms that we find. Um, and when we realize that the phenomena, that the, sorry, that the process of natural selection and the phenomenon of phenotypic adaptation are linked more contingently, if you like, um, and not as a matter of theoretical necessity than has often been thought, then we open up the, we, the, the gap between the two sorts of agential thinking and we realize why it could be legitimate to apply the organism as rational agent heuristic as a way of understanding adaptation while rejecting the idea that the process of natural selection can always be usefully analogized to a process of, of rational choice between alternatives. So that's the significance of um, the, the, me delving into the question of what the link is between selection and adaptation, that on the face of it is a sort of classic question in evolutionary biology, but I argue is a direct reflection of um, the question I'm interested in, of which is the link between these, two, one of the questions I'm interested in, which is the link between my two types of agential thinking. Right, good. Good. Um, well, you just mentioned rational choice theory, and um, you said at the very beginning, um, uh, you know, there's sort of two aspects to your philosophical life, or at least two anyway, you know, the, the, the philosophy of biology, but also the economics and rational choice. We haven't, we haven't really talked much about rational choice theory or, you know, utility maximization or, or any of those sort of concepts, you know, strictly from well, I don't know if I should say strictly, but, you know, from that, you know, that area of economics of, of modeling rational choice. Um, so, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, just can you tell us something about, you know, the relationship you see between ideas, again, of adaptive fitness and then of utility maximization in rational choice theory? Yeah. So I was talking about the connection between adaptation and rationality and i was talking about the interesting connection noted by many authors between the fitness maximizing paradigm in evolutionary biology and the utility maximizing paradigm in rational choice theory and this then suggests that 
if insofar as agential thinking is to be applicable to evolved behavior, we would need adaptive behavior in the sense of fitness maximizing behavior to correspond to rational behavior in the sense of utility maximizing behavior when utility is suitably defined in terms of biological fitness. And I sketched a simple little model in which that isomorphism between fitness and utility works nicely. However, in chapter six, I then come on to investigate a series of arguments, some found in the behavioral ecology literature, some in the economic theory literature, some in philosophy of science, all of which suggest that in certain possibly contrived cases, models can be constructed in which the adaptive and the rational part ways in the sense that the behavior that we find evolving by natural selection and which qualifies as adaptive behavior actually involves violation of norms of rational choice. For example, involves intransitive choices being made or involves violation of time consistency and intertemporal choice or violation of ex expected utility maximization in choice, choice under uncertainty, which I think is a highly interesting phenomenon. Um, and what I'm doing in that chapter is sort of surveying this large area of theoretical work and then standing back and saying, well, what does it really show? Now, of course, these models have been deliberately designed to um, precisely to produce that separation between adaptiveness and rationality. And so there's a question about how robust and how general this phenomenon is. But I think as a theoretical possibility, it's very interesting because it shows that there's no a priori guarantee that adaptive behavior will correspond to rational behavior where the latter is independently defined as conformity to standard principles or standard norms of rational choice theory. And this possibility that adaptiveness and rationality can part ways, I think of as indicating um, a limitation on agential thinking type one in that it shows that in these circumstances, which admittedly may be relatively rare in that the theoretical models are rather sort of contrived, behavior that's adaptive may not correspond to behavior that's rational. And so if we try and apply the organism as rational agent idea, to understand what we see, we won't be able to, if you like, despite the behavior um, being adaptive and having evolved by natural selection. So this then I think is a concrete illustration of why it is that the organism as rational agent heuristic or what I call agential thinking type one as applied to behavior is not always um, a heuristically defensible or valuable construct, despite its many advantages. Okay. Um, I mean, I would, I would love to follow that up and continue our discussion, but we're, we are running out of time. And I'd like to end with a question about um, your next step in terms of your research. Are you following up this book or turning to other things? What's, what's next for you? Um, well, most recently, I've been writing a little short introductory book about philosophy of biology in Oxford University's press, Oxford University Press's very short introduction series. 
Um, that's all done now, so I'm turning back towards research. Um, not really sure is the honest truth. I mean, I'm still interested in all of the themes in this book, and I by no means do I think that my treatment is definitive or that there's nothing more to say. On the contrary, just re actually rereading the book for this interview made me realize that I'd like to go back and probe some of these points more or uh, find a better way of expressing this or that point. So I would like to revisit these issues again um, and to, do, to, draw, to build further. However, I, I do think that pragmatically, as probably many people who write academic books will tell you, when you finish a book, then you need to sort of step back and leave, leave it aside for a bit and work on something else, which is what I intend to do for the next couple of years, although what exactly, I don't know yet. Okay, very good. Um, well, we're we are out of time, but uh, I do want to say it's been wonderful talking with you and exploring the many, at least some of the many interesting things in your book. Not at all. Thank you very much, Carrie. And thanks in particular for the excellent questions you asked. Really, really helped to focus the discussion. You've been listening to my interview with Samir Okasha, professor of philosophy at University of Bristol. We've been talking about his new book, Agents and Goals in Evolution, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.